Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Newcastle Chronicle and Journal, Lancashire Live and the Hull Daily Mail. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda Editor Rob Parsons. You might have noticed we didn't put out a podcast last week, and I imagine it's fairly obvious why, with the episode due out on the day after the Queen's death was announced. It felt like the right thing to do to give politics as usual a bit of a break. But we're back again this week with another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. I've been speaking to Jonathan Brook, a senior councillor in Cumbria, as his county goes through a radical restructuring of how local government works. And he tells us what it will mean for local people. And we hear from Rachel Redshaw, People and Culture Director at Nexus in the North East, on why companies need to stop the search for employee unicorns and think differently about how they recruit. Now, because we missed last week's episode, we didn't get a chance to say goodbye to our Westminster editor and co-host, Dan O'Donoghue, who's heading off to Pastor's New, and we wish him all the best at his new gig at the BBC. But this week, we have a great replacement in the form of Liam Thorpe, Liverpool Echo political editor. Liam, how are you? Hello, I'm very much uh, playing second fiddle to Dan, but happy to be in a supporting role, I would say. It's been a bit of a weird week, hasn't it? A few days ago, if we were thinking about what we might be talking about this week, I imagine we'd be anticipating talking about the first days of the Liz Truss government and what policies they've introduced and how they're going how they're going down in the north and what might be happening with the efforts to tackle the energy crisis. But obviously, we're not talking about any of that stuff and politics as normal has kind of been put. Uh, in the background a little bit. So, um, I mean, what's it been like for you as a political journalist? What what kind of things have you been writing about? Has, has there been much to much to write about other than the Queen in your part of the world? Um, yes, yeah, so I, I think in the first instance, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, it, it, these are remarkably historic times to to have had a new prime minister and a new monarch uh, sort of announced in the same week is is is, is pretty unheard of. Um, so you know, the, the, I think whatever kind of wherever you fall down in the you know royalist republican whatever your your sort of um, view on that is, it's it's a massive moment in history, um, and and it was, and and obviously when it when that breaks in a newsroom, it's kind of all hands to the pump, really. Um, with the, there were other people kind of leading on it here, but I try to support where I can, and certainly and any kind of changes to the political cycles, which of course there are. Um, and the, the political statements and all, all that kind of stuff. You know, there's, there's, there's plenty that we needed to do. So, you know, it's a, it's a huge moment. But you're right, it, it came, um, you know, the same day that, that the new prime minister had, had, in her second day in the in the job, had announced an enormous and huge decision or made an enormous and huge decision um, around energy bills. And you, you were only just kind of starting to dissect that when when the notes got passed around parliament and it was, it was became, started to become clear something massive was happening. And then it, it has all, obviously, you know, certainly in, in those first few days, all attention has been, has been in, in that direction. I think for us here, we can't forget about the, the, the crisis that is facing people. Uh, myself and a colleague are, are working on something for this weekend to really highlight just how, what a perilous position people and businesses and, and everyone is in. And I think there is a concern that um, while obviously it's right, it's right to pay, um, to pay those respects. If, if as is being suggested, Parliament is not meeting again till to into October, because obviously we're in the, after the conference season. You know, it, it could be too late for 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 people, certainly businesses that I've been speaking to, to know what on earth they will be dealing with. There's there's plenty we've 
spoken to that think that without any kind of clarity on on what Liz Truss's plan really means for them, that they might close. So yeah, cost of living crisis is is definitely still to the fore for us. And and you know we, we do believe that whilst it's important to while to continue to cover that, whilst obviously um, covering you know what's going on down in London as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess it is the case, isn't it, that when there's big policy announcements by the government, the way that they are scrutinised and held to account is via our elected representatives in Parliament. And because people only had a few hours to think about the energy uh, the energy measures before uh, the Queen's uh, death was uh, announced, that scrutiny hasn't really happened. And we still don't know what, what the impact is going to be on a lot of people, or at least it hasn't been uh, broadcast prominently. I mean, I was hearing um, Sasha Lord, who is the nighttime uh, advisor for Greater Manchester, who was saying a little earlier this week that he fears that seven out of 10 pubs won't survive the winter, which is an astonishingly uh, bleak outlook. And they're, they're, I guess all these pub owners and pub landlords are waiting for this uh, so-called fiscal event where Kwasi Kwarteng, the new chancellor, is going to unveil hopefully new measures to help businesses who aren't obviously getting the same help with their energy bills as as normal people are. So there's a lot that we still don't know. Hopefully by this time next week, we will know a bit more. But it's, it's yeah, like you say, there's uh, a lot uh, a lot more that we need to find out. Um, I'm interested in how the people in Liverpool are feeling about everything that we've seen about the Queen this week and the fact that there's so much attention on it. I mean, I think it, it's not unfair to say that the people of Liverpool have a uh, slightly different relationship with the the nation and its institutions than other parts of the North have. And you see that played out in, you know, at big football matches at Wembley where some Liverpool fans boo the national anthem and that kind of thing. And so there's, there's been quite a lot of attention, hasn't there, on when a football match was played at Anfield this week, like what, how Liverpool football fans and Liverpool people in general would react to that. I mean, what what have you made of all that as it's been happening? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it can it can tend to get a bit overblown, and and there are there are certain elements of the media that that want, will want to make a big a big thing out of it. You're right, that has happened previously with the boon of the national anthem, and I would say it's it's certainly more in in that specific example. You know, that's not directed. You know, I don't think that's directed at the royal family. It's directed at this the idea of kind of nationhood and 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 where some people in Liverpool feel sort of you know separate from that you'll have heard the kind of scouse not english thing it's important to always say that that that, that this isn't everyone you know i think sometimes we can all be guilty of, of pigeonholing people in liverpool can get a bit pigeonholed as everyone has the same kind of view um there, there are definitely people who are very sad about the queen dying here we, we had a a a mersey maritime moment yesterday uh, where all the, the the every working vessel on the mersey moved out to the middle and and honked their horns and there's a bit of a show and you know, there's good good hundreds of people down there. There was hundreds of people who came down to to the proclamation as well. So, so I think it, you know it, this is a big, massive, diverse city. But that, that, but there are you know there is a good a good chunk of people who perhaps don't feel that same the same level of affinity to 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 the state and to its institutions as as perhaps in other areas. I think I think what you saw at the football, for example, was from what I could see, a generally very well-observed silence. A couple of people shouted up and generally got shouted down. And, the, the, you know, it, it had been made, probably been made more of a big deal of before it actually happened. And and in the end, it wasn't a big deal. Um, 
So I, I, I just I, I would go back though and say that in terms of sort of comments I've seen, responses I've had, probably the main frustration here is that this is a city that is in peril. It's in absolute peril. It's you know we've got many deprived communities. We've got a massive just you're talking about Sasha Lord then massively important hospitality sector. That's that you know it's the lifeblood of this economy, and they're all they're all in in peril and they're waiting and they're desperate. So I think the frustration and it's not a frustration with with what's happened with the Queen. It's just that they don't know and and obviously it has it, I guess it has held things up a bit. So that they're, they're, they're certainly more annoyed with the government than anyone else. I would say and. We just need to hear some some clarity on on what's going to happen next, really. Yeah, and speaking of the you know, difficult situation that many communities in Liverpool uh, are in, obviously, it, you know, as well as the central government, it falls to Liverpool City Council to to ha- try and deal with some of those problems. And I, from what I can tell, Liverpool is one of the only councils that's kind of kept its planned meetings going. Uh, in the last few days, like most local authorities that I've seen have cancelled or postponed the vast majority of their 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 meetings. I think in Hull they they, they postponed it and then they they reinstated it uh, again because they wanted to talk about cost of living issues, which if they hadn't talked about it this week would have had to be put back to November, which is uh, ridiculous, really. So, um, but but in Liverpool, planned council meetings have gone ahead pretty much all through the week, haven't they? Pretty much all of them. I think there may have been one postponement, but yeah, pretty much all of the ones that were scheduled to go ahead have done. We've got an important audit committee meeting tonight, um, and I think I think it's the it's 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 you know it's a combination really of people in a being in a desperate situation and the council recognizing that you know trying to get plans through any kind of debates around how the council can support people. But also, as I've mentioned previously on this podcast, Liverpool Council is in a really bad way. You know, they've got they've, it, we saw in the summer that an, an already existing intervention by government was expanded. Um, they, 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 we're still waiting to see how Simon Clark, as the new Secretary of State for Leveling Up, kind of kind of responds to that. But the, the current plan, which came under his predecessor, his brief predecessor Greg, um, is that that expansion will basically mean that the government is in charge of pretty much all financial decisions at the council, which is massive, massive and effective takeover, you would think. So it is, and there are more commissioners have joined them. So I, I, it's the council's in a hole and it needs to it needs to get itself out of it. Um, so I, I think probably a decision made with the commissioners was that we need to keep these meetings going really and and keep this, the business of the council going because, you know, they're, they're, they're already they're already fighting an uphill battle to, to kind of get, get things back in place. Uh, and any more delays would, would not be good for that. I imagine there'll be more talk about what's going on in Liverpool uh, in our podcast next week, because we'll be looking ahead to the Labour Party conference, which is being held in Liverpool later this month. But uh, Liam, thank you very much. Nice, nice to chat to you. And now let's hear a bit from our guests this week. Now, how much do you know about the people making the decisions about your local services? In most parts of the North, it's simple enough. Elected councillors make up local authorities who decide how and when your bins are collected, how best to provide vital services like social care or housing. But if you're in North Yorkshire, or Cumbria, things are getting a bit more complicated. In both of these largely rural counties, each with their own distinct issues and problems. The old system of district councils being responsible for some services and a county council for others will soon be a thing of the past. They're being replaced with all new unitary authorities, which will take on all local services 
and will come into being next year with shadow authorities paving the way for their arrival in the next few months. In Cumbria, at the end of the shake-up, we're going to be left with Cumberland Council in the west and Westmoreland and Furness in the east. So what does all this mean for local democracy and will anyone actually notice the difference? To find out, let's speak to Councillor Jonathan Brook. He's currently the leader of South Lakeland Council, but from next year will lead the new Westmoreland and Furness Authority. Jonathan, welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast. Hello there. Thanks for the invitation. No problem at all. So for people in the North who don't know much about Westmoreland and Furness, can you tell our listeners a bit about the area and what makes it uh, unique, what makes it special? Yeah, sure. So uh, the new Western and Furness Council area will be one of the largest uh, geographic uh, footprints of any unitary council in England, Um, but it will also be the most rural and um, therefore uh, it is is unique. That being said, it's a a diverse range of communities right across the area from Barrow in Furness on the coast uh, in the west to Alston, nestling in the Pennines uh, in the east, one of the highest, if not the highest market towns in England. So there's a huge uh, range of uh, different uh, communities uh, with different issues and, uh, and uh, opportunities right across uh, this huge swathe of the northwest of England. We're talking about the local government reorganisation, and I know that in some of the areas like North Yorkshire, which have seen these kind of radical changes that we're talking about, the general feeling is that this is something that's been imposed on local areas by central government rather than them choosing to do it themselves. I mean, obviously, you're at the heart of this in Cumbria. What's your view on local government reorganisation in general? Is Is it something you've supported from the start or have you sort of come around to it reluctantly? Well, I think we we were already looking at working across boundaries uh, in in our area and particularly with South Lakeland and Barrow and Lancaster. We were uh, thinking about a possibility of uh, applying for for a growth deal around Morecambe Bay. Um, Then uh, the government sort of came along and said that uh, we'd be one of the areas that uh, where local reorganisation would be being uh, progressed. We proposed a bay authority uh, based on the functioning economic area around the bay, uh, but that wasn't chosen. So we've now, as Western Inferno is going to be an authority made up of uh, Barrow Borough Council, South Lakeland District Council and Eden uh, Council together with uh, our share of, of Cumbria County Council. So, um, as I say, we've always been open to, to working across boundaries. This wasn't our choice, and uh, particularly uh, the timing also uh, on the back of the uh, pandemic wasn't great. But uh, the government, having said that this is what ought to happen, we've certainly uh, thrown our all in to uh, the process, and we're very keen that we do deliver um significant improvements in terms of service delivery uh, across our new area so we're we're embracing it uh, enthusiastically and looking forward to the opportunities that uh, uh, local government reorganization will bring with it and i know that in north yorkshire uh, local leaders were told that basically if you want to get a devolution deal and all the benefits that will bring you have to take part in this local organi- local government 
reorganization otherwise the de- devolution's not going to happen i mean is is that is was that the arrangement in cumbria as well like this, this is really seen as a stepping stone to getting a getting devolved powers and everything that comes from that or or is it something that is seen as a good thing just purely in and of itself well i think i think the two things uh, in a sense, have always been separate. Uh, it wasn't a case of uh, one automatically leading to another. Um, but certainly, if you like, the, the strong hint is that, uh, if you like, uh, that, you know, once we've perhaps gone through or are going through the local government reorganisation process, then um, a devolution deal uh, might be the next uh, step in the process. I think from our perspective having just going through this process uh, at the moment um, stripping out a tier of, of local government um, the first thing that's being suggested is that we ought to insert another tier by having a, a mayor uh, in the process um, not necessarily uh, one that makes immediate sense and I think if we were um, to, I mean, we're, we're open to, to negotiation, of course, but I think we would probably, uh, again, be looking uh, for something uh, a little bit different and, and possibly for a deal that uh, if we were going to have a mayoral combined authority, that, that we'd be looking uh, for a footprint um, perhaps slightly uh, wider than the Cumbrian uh, footprint again, uh, bearing in mind local uh, geography and history, and indeed uh, local economy. So um, we're certainly up for that discussion. But at the moment, we're very focused on delivering uh, the reorganisation, which is a significant, um, significant burden on on all our authorities at the moment in terms of uh, the resource that we're having to uh, devote to getting the job done. Yeah, I'm sure. So just to clarify that last point, you're saying that from your point of view, if there was going to be a devolution deal in Cumbria, you would quite like to have it over a wider area, perhaps with Lancashire or or go in a different direction up up, up north. Is that, is yes. that kind of what, how, how you see it? Well, I think... I think... Uh, the most likely uh, option would be to to perhaps include Lancaster, Lancaster or Lancashire. We'd be open for that discussion. And as I say, that makes sense in terms of uh, geography, history and, and economics. Interesting. Well, we'll see how that uh, develops. So to go back to the, the thing that we were discussing, the local government reorganisation, what difference will people in your patch notice about the new arrangements? Will it actually make people's lives better, do you think? Well, we're certainly uh, working hard to uh, redesign services um, in a way that uh, reflects uh, our local communities. Um, as I've said, the diverse communities uh, with you know, different different needs and different ambitions right across our district. So we're looking to a form of governance for, for our new uh, council that, uh, uh, if you like, devolves power down to communities wherever possible. And so hopefully what people will see is that they will be closer to the democratic process than they were uh, historically. And then flowing from that, hopefully that people will be able to engage with that decision-making process and that decisions, therefore, will be tailored more to the local communities right across um, our uh, 
diverse area. So that that's the hope and the aspiration. We are getting rid of a tier of, of, of local governance. And so um, people, I think, have been confused um, about, uh, you know, we'll often talk about the council when, in fact, you know, it's really been the councils. But um, again, uh, so it will be uh, the council that, that people will need to talk to. Um, that's probably oversimplifying it to some extent because as part of uh, the geographic area that we cover, we also uh, have two national parks, the Lake District National Park and the Yorkshire Dales National Park. And so that element will also uh, be in the mix and we will uh, indeed be looking to, to work uh, closely with those authorities as well. And there may be uh, opportunities also to redesign services uh, in conjunction with those authorities. The area of Cumbria that you represent is, you know, is very different to lots of parts of the north that people would be familiar with. And I know one of your one of your strategy lead specialists uh, has said in a recent report that Westmoreland and Furness has an aging population and a declining workforce, which is quite a challenging problem to to tackle what kind of thing i mean i guess it, this is something that you're already looking at this this issue of the declining workforce and the aging population in cumbria but will having a new unitary authority make it easier to tackle problems like that how, how, how do you go about it okay well yes uh, these are significant challenges uh, for us and and in a sense, they're not new, but uh, clearly looking forward, we actually um, have a super aging population. So large parts of the Northwest, uh, we do have this uh, issue. But here for us, uh, it, we're facing that problem uh, at an increased pace um, than elsewhere. And so uh, it is important that we uh, help to create balanced communities, um, that we attract and retain our young people. Um, And so we're we're trying to encourage development of of relevant uh, further education, higher education, apprenticeships, um, working across boundaries, as I've mentioned. We have issues with the availability of uh, affordable housing for local people. And so again, we will be very much focused on delivering affordable housing uh, in those areas uh, w- that particularly need it and, and looking at uh, policies um, that will enable us um, to do that. So, so yes, the challenge is significant, but hopefully, again, as I say, that, that we will be uh, very much focused and very uh, through our uh, structure, uh, hopefully um, people will be able to engage with us and we'll be able to deliver services um, in a way uh, that is better targeted to to the needs that we have. Now, uh, the final question, Jonathan. The obviously the big politics story of this week is where our new Prime Minister Liz Truss replacing Boris Johnson. I'm I'm just kind of interested about you know from your perspective of your constituents in Cumbria, how they feel and you feel about your relationship with central government. I mean, obviously Cumbria is from from Westminster. It's a long, a long way away. Uh, quite a remote part of uh, of Northern England. Do, do you feel that Cumbria sometimes gets a bit ignored by governments of all, all, all stripes? And, and if so, what, what can be done about that? Well, I think, I mean, we are on, on the edge of, of uh, England, if you like. And so uh, we're on the, on the periphery. Um, certainly, 
governments take notice of uh, the larger conurbations to our south, the Liverpool, Manchester, uh, Leeds, Sheffield, etc., maybe Newcastle um, to our east. Um, so I think I think Cumbria probably has been uh, forgotten to some extent. That's also also been probably we've not done a great job ourselves uh, in in promoting and uh, have speaking with one voice. I think uh, historically it's we've been quite parochial. Each of the the areas, the districts within Cumbria have, have got quite different problems and issues, um, and so I think uh, this rationalisation should help uh, us to uh, be more focused in terms of uh, our message to to government and so uh, hopefully uh, we will be able to to have our voice heard there'll only be the two authorities covering the the cumbrian uh, geography hopefully we will be able to collaborate um, on uh, those matters where we're able to uh, to have that uh, sort of focus and thinking particularly in terms of uh, transport for example uh, hs2 uh, etc those, those kind of issues um where i think the danger is that that cumbria can be uh, the forgotten partner so so we'll certainly be again looking to to seize those opportunities and to be able to project um the voice uh, of our uh, communities uh, very much to uh, to central government in in a way that perhaps we've we've not been able to do uh, successfully before. So again, I'm I'm optimistic. I think I think um, that there's tremendous opportunities here, and we need to make sure that we we uh, we seize those opportunities uh, as best we can. Jonathan Brook, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Of all the changes we've all had to get used to in the last two or three years, perhaps the biggest are the massive differences in the way that millions of us now work. And this week in Newcastle, a one-day conference organised by the RSA Think Tank will explore just this topic, giving experts from a range of backgrounds the chance to offer their perspective on what the future of work means for them. Among them is Rachel Redshaw, People and Culture Director at Nexus, the operator of the Tynanweir Metro and the region's passenger transport executive, which aims to improve the quality of life of everyone in Tynanweir by creating better transport networks. And at the Future of Work conference, she'll be arguing that the way many organisations recruit their staff is fundamentally flawed and needs to change both for the sake of the organisations themselves but also the employees that they're hiring. So, Rachel, welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast. Hello, thanks for having me today. No problem at all. So, the subject of your talk is about why employers need to stop the search for unicorns to be future-ready. Now, I must admit, I wasn't familiar with the concept of unicorn employees, but with a quick bit of Googling, it turns out that, like actual unicorns, uh, unicorn employees are hard to find, but once hired offer up enormous benefits in the workplace by being prepared to work hard, take on different job roles, and taking an organisation to a new level. You might have other other definitions for it. But I thought, um, I mean, this sounds, this sounds great. So maybe you could explain 
why it is that a unicorn employee is not necessarily what organisations should be should be looking for. Yeah, it's really interesting when you look it up because the term unicorns becoming more used probably than when I first started using it. Um, what I mean by unicorn is essentially that we traditionally go out to hire according to a huge brief of technical requirements, qualifications, experience, um, an unlikely brief to be able to fill. And then we go out on the search of unicorns. And unicorns, in my view, is something that are very difficult to find, very difficult to hire. We also often say they have to come from the same industry. They have to have the same background. So we're looking for a unicorn from a unicorn organization. And what I think that does is it downplays what I think are probably the most important things that you need to look for, which are core competencies and skills. And it's about turning that on its head and having the conversation which says technical skills, qualifications are really important, but do they have to be the majority of what you look for? Or can you turn it on its head and get the right attributes and competencies and actually put in place the right person for the organization? Who is flexible? Who is agile? Who can learn? All of those different skills which are critical now. That's interesting. And so at the moment, in your view, organisations, they are looking too much at specific technical competencies and not enough at the sort of broader skills that someone might bring to bear from a different a different industry, a different sector, which could, with the right training and the right sort of uh, guidance, you know, be just as useful as having a specific skill in a specific area. Yeah. And, and I think that's the way it's always been done. And I'm not saying that it's, it hasn't worked. What I'm saying now is with the pace of change, I think it's fundamentally flawed and that you should, you know, be able to get just as many advantages from a talent and skills perspective by turning the tables on what you're looking for. So instead of it being a tiny discussion on some core skills like, oh, they've got to be a good communicator or team worker, that you actually lead in with that. You actually think about what are those core competencies and skills that can enable somebody to learn. You know, how can we transition those skills in the organisation and how can we teach people as opposed to expecting them to already have everything in place, you know, to be fully baked. I think that there's an opportunity there to be more diverse, more inclusive, if we are more flexible in the way we look at technical and experience level type skills. They're still important, they're actually critical, but there's a different way I think that we can hire in the future. I'm interested in how this uh, how this philosophy is applied at Nexus, because obviously at Nexus, I guess the people who work for your organisation, they need they, they are dealing with quite specific transport, public transport related matters to do with to do with the, the metro system and, and public transport in general. So, are you is this philosophy something that you're already applying with the way that you recruit staff? Are you are you sort of looking at their the, the things that you've described, the sort of broader uh, broader abilities that that they might bring be able to bring to bear, or is it still a bit of a transition from the old way of old way of doing things? It's definitely a transition, and I wouldn't like to pretend that we we are far along that journey in terms of being able to say we've done it and we've got huge amounts of experience. We're on the journey like everybody else. But what I can say is that we have recognised that if we're to move forward, it is about our people. 
and the environment that we create. And it is about making sure that you plan so that we can teach skills in-house and that we can actually develop our own people and those that come in to join us to be the best that they can be at work. So we have a learning centre, a huge learning centre with huge capability. And what we're saying now is that's great for technical skills and we still need to hire for technical skills. But what we can do is complement that with non-technical skills so that people develop the core competencies they need to progress the careers. So it's a bit of both. What I'm saying is that I don't think we are always going to be able to find someone that has everything that maybe a person we've lost had. You know, you've got people with 40 years domain expertise who are moving into retirement or moving on to other things. We're not going to be able to find that unicorn. But what we can find are people with some of the core technical foundational skills and we can transition them, teach them and develop them for what we need for the future. Looking around uh, you know, the reporting that's done on local authorities and public organisations like yours, I get the sense that there's a bit of a, you're constantly having to uh, compete with private organisations. And I, I see that, you know, it's people, councils are struggling to take on, get social workers to work for them or that they're leaving because that, you know, they can earn more at Amazon or at Tesco. And so I guess the net that you have to cast to get the employees that you need, perhaps you need, you're having to cast it wider because there's more competition now and it's perhaps harder to get some types of employee than it has been in the past. Yeah, but I actually think that's true of both public and private sector. You know, I think that people people have to look differently at how they cast that net because employees are looking differently at their employers. They're looking for what experience can be offered. What are you going to do to support them through the whole life cycle? We are never going to be able to compete on base salary. You know, and, and we're never going to try to. But what we can do is is compete around the areas of career development and upskilling and personal growth, because I really feel that we've got a huge amount of investment goes into that in terms of time and resources. And I also feel that there's a big commitment to make a difference in that area. So that is something that um, I see a lot of us leading the way on. But I also think that we should be looking for partnerships wherever we can. And that's partnerships, whether it be with other organisations, whether it be with education and whether it be within our communities. You know, we should be looking at the future to develop those partnerships so that we are all in it together and we all win together. Less about competition and more about collaboration. And I feel that certainly in the future, that's going to be the way that we can all succeed. I believe we can all succeed. It doesn't have to be that we succeed at the detriment of someone else. I feel that we can all succeed together if we take a really creative look at it and develop those partnerships and networks. How has the relationship between the sort of employee and employer changed in recent years in terms of what a prospective employee is now looking for from the the organisation that employees them. I mean, has the pandemic changed that? Or you, you sort of alluded to it with in terms of you know, a, a better employee experience. So presumably, are employers having to do a bit more now to attract and keep and retain uh, staff than perhaps they did before? I definitely believe that's the case. And I think even the thinking around it, the amount of interviews I've sat in over 25 years, where the candidate was expected to sell to us 
why we should take them with very little time for them to ask whether we were right for them. And actually, the tables have turned on that. Candidates are wanting to know what employers can offer them, what they can do to support what they're looking for. I believe they're looking for a similar experience to what they get in the personal lives from every service and product provider. You know, things have become personalised, individual, fast, very supportive. And they're now saying, why can't I have that from work? So that's a baseline um, value system that I think lots of people are operating to. Um, we also have five generations in the workplace, which means that you've got lots of people with lots of different expectations, meaning that personalization of work is even more important. But in terms of COVID, we were already seeing a massive pace of change. And I just think that paced things up even quicker in the sense that this might have been 10 years off. This may not have been something we had to face yet, but people are looking to better blend the work and personal lives so that there isn't that distinction of, I go to work and I can't do anything in my personal life during those hours. When I go home, that's personal. They're looking for more hybrid working, more agility, more flexibility so that they can do the things they want to do in the personal life alongside the things they want to do in the work life. And that's a, a question we get asked across every age group, every type of population. It's quite universal. That's really interesting. Now, and the, the final question, because we do, we do quite a lot about, um, you know, the whole, as part of the whole levelling up agenda, there's a lot of talk about attracting high-skilled jobs to local areas and, you know, getting uh, these, these high-skilled jobs in, in, into the northeast, into, into the northwest. I mean, in terms of Nexus, how uh, hard or easy is it to persuade prospective potential employees to come from other parts of the, the country to, to the northeast like is your workforce primarily people that you've recruited from within the northeast or how, are you able to recruit people from other parts of the country i think this is probably a common problem because i've worked in the northeast for a long time in the sense that the northeast does tend to hire predominantly from the northeast not because there's the you know strategy to do so but because you tend to have such good skills and competencies within the region and you have been able to to kind of move talent around in order to meet the needs of different businesses. Would we be open to candidates from outside? Yes, you have people that move back to the Northeast or choose to move to the Northeast. You've got a huge university population, many of who, you know, I'm friends with who stay, you know, once they come and, and education's a good route through to attract people as well and skills from outside of the core area. I do think as, you know, we become more flexible and more able to enable agile working further with technology, you're always going to have the opportunity, therefore, to attract more skills and competencies even outside of the region. But I do think one of the benefits we have is that our people are together. You know, you have got a, a huge benefit from people being in close proximity, even if they're not always working side by side in the office. Um, and there's huge innovation and creativity benefits you can get from that. Fantastic stuff. Well, a lot of food for thought there for uh, potential uh, employers, people thinking about hiring and also people, I guess, applying for jobs. So um, Rachel Redshaw, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue. And it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.